Welcome to Healthy Discussions, the podcast series bringing you in-depth conversations about big picture ideas in healthcare. I'm Zach Hassan, a junior doctor in Scotland. In each episode, I'll be using my debating experience to search for answers to three overarching questions. What ideas are influencing our healthcare? How do we weigh up conflicting views on the challenges our system faces? And what can we do to make the most positive impact to healthcare and wider society that we can? So today's guest is MP Dr Philippa Whitford about whether we need more doctors in politics. She is a consultant breast cancer surgeon and the Westminster Health Spokesperson for the Scottish National Party. I had amazing fun listening to her talk about the challenges faced by women in surgery in the 1980s, the experience of politicians and the UK's COVID response. So without further delay, here is Philippa Whitford. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Philippa. Uh, Thanks very much, Zach. So um, I'm just, you know, there's there's so much that you've done over your career. I'm just, uh, I'm wondering about how you kind of started off in early life. What Can you tell us about what your early career aspirations were? Did you always want to be a surgeon? Oh, yeah, I wanted to be a surgeon from the age of 11. Um, and kind of that's why I did medicine. I really kind of wanted to be a surgeon. And then I was about halfway through medical school. I was in third year and we just completed the block and I did a surgical elective in Glasgow and we were all out in the pub as we do in Glasgow um, afterwards. And someone said, you know, you did well in the exam. What is it you want to do? And when I said I wanted to do surgery, they kind of went, oh, um, but women can't do surgery. Do you do you not know that? And, th- and they didn't even mean it that that's what they thought. They meant it like that's a simple fact of life. There's no point in you trying to do surgery. And at that time, Scotland had no women surgeons at all. And I I simply wasn't aware of that. And it took hours. I mean, at first I was just laughing. I thought they were just winding me up. Um, And that was quite a big challenge, having, you know, worked hard at school, having got into medical school and then be told the thing you're aiming to do isn't going to be possible was was actually quite hard to kind of get my head around so I had to kind of work out right what's my game plan Um, and I made two decisions the other thing I really loved at medical school was um, being involved with cancer patients and at that time kind of palliative care the hospice movement were all just beginning to kind of burgeon in the UK and I thought well that's my backup plan if I can't get anywhere I would go into palliative care, I would get involved in working in hospices, but I'm basically going to put my head down, put my elbows and my horns out and take a good run at this. And and that's what I did. But I mean, the first half of my career, and I spent 33 years in surgery, um, was very much dominated by the fact I was a woman. And it sounds like in that adversity, it sort of made you more determined to succeed. I mean, were you seeing kind of colleagues at the time being discouraged as well and, and having to go in into other specialties because they didn't want to take on that, that fight themselves? Well, I think there was a general discouragement. So there were often relatively few women who would be 
pushing hard to do surgery. Um, but even of those that did, I mean, all of them faced kind of um, blockage and adversity. Um, I mean, I was lucky enough after doing my house jobs I got to go back to Belfast and and did my year did a year there um as as my first SHO job but in their system they had relatively few juniors so I actually got huge experience but there was when they gave me the role there was a little bit of a kind of oh you know there's this odd woman from Scotland let's give her a shot kind of thing so you 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 definitely were kind of the novelty um and and one of the funny incidents when i was there was i did orthopedics and someone assumed that my name was a typo and had changed it back to philip and so it was literally when i appeared on and it was literally when I appeared on the ward was the first time that the consultants knew they had a, a, a woman senior house officer. And I thought they were all going to have cardiac arrest. And of course, I hadn't seen this. So when they were going, but you can't be, it's not possible. I had no idea what they were talking about. Um, so that was, you know, that was kind of quite an eye opener. Um, and, and I had that kind of thing a lot when I came back from Belfast to try and get into the west of scotland rotation i mean my interview frankly was a disgrace i mean it was kind of 16 elderly men round a table um you know asking many frankly stupid questions i mean i did get asked about my experience in belfast but you know i i got they said things like well you know women just don't have the physical stamina to be surgeons and then one of them said well you know women don't really have the mental capacity to be surgeons, you know, and, and I'm kind of going, well, I can't believe anyone around this table could be so stupid to believe that. And um, one of them kind of said, well, you know, there's the issue of monthly mood swings. Um, you know, that would be a real problem in surgery. And my response to that was, I've worked for consultants with daily mood swings. So surely monthly would be an improvement, you know, and, and, and it kind of went on in this vein. Um, but then the final was kind of, um, well, actually, you know, you've done a lot. You've done a lot of operating in Belfast. We would back you in a career in surgery, but you'd have to agree never to have children. Um, and, and my was, response was, you know, I'm not going to give up my right to motherhood for any job. And then it was, well, thank you very much, Dr. Whitford. We'll let you know. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm unemployed. <laughs> you know? and it, so it was just, I mean, and this this is the mid-80s. You know, this is long after the Equality Act, and you still had this ingrained presumption. And even now, while 37% of young surgeons are women, still only 12% are of consultants are women. But, I mean, when I started out UK-wide, it was well under 1% and none in Scotland. Um, and, you know, I, I'm kind of not surprised that orthopaedics is the kind of specialty that, that you mentioned there. I mean, I think things have got better uh, from my point of view. I've just sort of finished my FY2, but there, there's still a lot of challenges uh, there for people. I mean, have you kind of seen things change over the course of your career? Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, one of the orthopods in Belfast, I remember, the secretary giving me a heads up that he was not happy at the idea he'd been allocated a woman SHO and and I met him on a on a theater day um and I could hear him right along the corridor 
you know, shouting and moaning about the fact, stormed into the anaesthetic rooms like, you know, opening saloon doors and then marched up to me and squeezed my biceps and said, mm, well, maybe you'll do, you know, this kind of, uh, of of attitude. In actual fact, we got on really well because if you're dealing with a misogynist, at least you know where you stand. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was totally overt and, you know, utterly indefensible. What you saw over time was it become more subtle you had people who knew they couldn't get away with talking like that, but equally there was still, um, you know, other ways of of referring to women in surgery or or undermining you. But I do remember when I became a consultant the first time I had my all female had an all female team, and and that was something I celebrated that my registrar, my SHO, and my house officer were all women, and I thought, wow, that is. Uh, fantastic but so yeah I've seen and I've seen a kind of broader um, spectrum of women kind of come forward for surgery and succeed in surgery whereas if you're in the first handful you do generally need to be kind of quite pushy quite loud very determined whereas that isn't representing uh, if you like the breadth of strengths of women um, and I, I remember um, a, a surgeon, an English uh, vascular surgeon, um, who was kind of close to retirement, saying, you know, we'll only actually have a quality when we have totally mediocre women surgeons, when, when you don't have to be special, you don't have to jump through hoops in some special way to be a surgeon. We're still a long way from that if only 12% of consultants are women, but there's definitely far broader group of women coming up through the ranks. So I, I hope that's changing. And it is a benefit to patients. The profession should represent the society. So whether that's ethnic background or sexuality or even people with disability, then you're talking about a medical profession that understands the people they're looking after. And I think that's really important. So then you become a consultant and uh, you kind of, you know, you make some changes to the the breast cancer service where you're working and you also kind of volunteer abroad in in Gaza. And I'm just wondering kind of, uh, especially, you know, about Gaza, what kind of impact did that make on you? Uh, Well, Gaza came a long time before I became a consultant. Um, I had always wanted, you know, just to add another layer of difficulty to my career, I had always wanted to go overseas um, and spend some time doing kind of uh, developmental or aid work. Um, And I used to raise this in my kind of annual registrar interview. And A, I got laughed at for saying I wanted to be a a breast cancer surgeon because at that time it wasn't recognized as a specialty. And the second thing was they said, there's no way you can't leave the West of Scotland or you'll not be able to come back. And then when I hit 30, I kind of thought, you know, I actually need to get on and do this or I'm never going to do it. And my husband and I spent quite a long time looking for kind of the right project. He was doing anaesthetics at that time, but on his way to general practice, which was always his long term goal. Um, And I had, you know, I'd passed my exams. I'd been a registrar for quite a long time, done quite a lot of different specialties. Um, And simply i mean we we looked at german charities we looked at all sorts of places 
uh, in the world. So we didn't set out to go to Gaza. But in the end of the day, um, we had kept ignoring this advert in the British Overseas Medical Service listings because it said kind of wanted war surgeon. And, and I kind of, you know, that's naff, just kept turning it over. <laughs> and then at one point I thought, well, I should probably read the adverts. And they were looking for um, uh, someone to be a consultant surgeon with a special uh interest in urology because it was going to cover for a Palestinian coming to London for a year um, and they were also looking for an anaesthetist for the intensive care unit and that was through medical aid for Palestinians and in Al-Akhli hospital in Gaza City and so when I saw that I thought wow that's kind of us um, and wrote away and as soon as we got the letter back I thought no this is it because it was important to me that I would use my skills, that there would be enough infrastructure that I'd be working as a surgeon, um, but also that when I would leave, there would be the ability to have left some knowledge uh, and training behind. And the hospital that we went to was a kind of 100-bed hospital, um, basically supported by the by the UN, and it served the sort of half a million official 1948 refugees within the Gaza Strip um, for the kind of basic specialties, medicine, surgery, pediatrics, maternity. Um, and I mean, it was, you did a six day week. It was a one in two with an American consultant who'd been uh, out in the Middle East for kind of 25 years. So was kind of falling a bit behind in, in you know, some of the kind of modern specialties. And I was able to set up sort of teaching and training. And, and the things I'm probably most proud of is um, two of my registrars passed fellowships first time one in Dublin, one in Glasgow, and one of my SHOs passed his Jordanian boards the first time. So having set up kind of tutorials, organized journals, brought in medical books and so on, um, it was great to see them. And one of the registrars, he's now a consultant in East Jerusalem. And I'm still involved with Gaza through medical aid for Palestinians. I went out in 2016 after I'd been elected on a fact-finding visit looking at the kind of breast cancer services and then got mapped to set up a medical bridge between clinicians here in Scotland that I recruited um, who work with clinical teams in Gaza and we also do in the West Bank as well um, to share skills. We do training visits um, but also for Gaza they uh, we have a Skype multidisciplinary team meeting at seven o'clock on a Tuesday morning on a Tuesday morning. So I'm still very closely involved with, uh, with Gaza. So it is really inspiring to kind of hear you talk about Gaza because I know that a lot of people who are at my stage of, of career, sort of post-FY2, they're really wanting to be able to go abroad and uh, get this kind of extra experience. You know, do you have any, um, you know, advice or, you know, do you think that's a good thing? I, I, I would absolutely recommend uh, working overseas. I think it broadens your view of the world. I think it changes you incredibly. But I think the time 
that you choose to go is critically important. I know that after the foundation jobs, often that's when people think, oh, yeah, I want to go overseas. Now, that's fine if you're going to New Zealand or Australia and you're slotting into a system that is still training you where you have backup. But if you were wanting to go overseas as a volunteer, you are going to end up in more difficult situations. You will not have backup. You will largely be it. And therefore, I think you want to be waiting until you're much more experienced. You know, I had already been doing surgery for for nine years, basically, when I when I went to Gaza. And in essence, there, I was the consultant. So, you know, if, if you're looking at going to a developing country or being part of a project like that, I think the advantage of the current system is that you can actually go all the way through and get your CCT certificates. And then you don't actually have to rush off and get a job as a consultant. Or if you're doing general practice, you will have completed your training in four years and you still do not have to settle down at that point into a practice. And and we didn't have that. If you If you stepped off the ladder at all, you were in danger. And indeed, I was told quite openly at those registrar interviews, once I had the post in Gaza, if you go, you will never work in the West of Scotland again. So so there's now an obvious point to go when you are not yet in your permanent job, but yet you've actually got kind of a really strong um, teaching and training behind you. So I think it depends on what it is you want to do. As I say, if it's early, then it needs to go somewhere where you're in a system. If you want to go into a, a more volunteer developmental or AIDS, uh, aid uh, kind of setting, then wait until you've got something to offer. Um, because otherwise you will be in a position where you're faced with situations you can't deal with. And actually that will be destructive rather than strengthen you. It's not tourism and volunteerism is not right. So so wait until you can really give something to the people that you're going to go and work with. And I suppose the, the other kind of opportunity that that offers is that when you come back, you've maybe been able to manage situations that you wouldn't see in the UK. I mean, is that what you found with, with kind of your experience? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, at that time in Gaza, it wasn't under the blockade that it's under now, but it was often under curfew. Um, and, you you know, I, I was kind of it. So, you know, you were dealing with all sorts of things. When I, when I arrived, the other doctor said, oh, we don't see breast cancer. I mean, this was already my interest, although I was, of course, still doing general surgery at, at that time and had done a lot of trauma when I was training in, in Belfast. Um but as soon as women heard that there was a woman surgeon, I mean, breast cancer patients came out of the woodwork and you were talking about really locally advanced, difficult cases. Of course, we had, you know, injuries and things from from gunshot wounds, but we also had often the hardest cases were neglected disease um, because people would, would have to pay to go for private health care or um, would would have difficulty in traveling to our hospital if it was under curfew. And if we wanted to send a case on to Jerusalem to one of the more specialist hospitals, if there was curfew, you couldn't. I mean, I remember a case of a 10-year-old boy whose kidney was obstructed uh, with a stone and infected, and he was incredibly ill and septic. And we stabilized him and sent him off in an ambulance to the children's hospital in Jerusalem, 
but they wouldn't let him through the border at Gaza, uh, at, at Eris, the checkpoint. So so suddenly he's back with us and we got a, one of the cardiologists used his ultrasound probe to mark on his back where the most direct access to the pus was. And we got out the central line to do a Seldinger and all various, you know, Heath Robinson things to try and at least drain the pus because otherwise it was clear he was not going to survive very long. So, so you were often in, a, in an incredibly exposed situation of, of having to deal with cases that, frankly, you'd never even seen here. Um, the pathology, um, huge prostates, lots of large uh, bladder cancer because of schistosomiasis from people who'd worked in Egypt in, in agriculture, a lot of renal obstruction and a lot of, um, due to being a, a trapped population for several generations, you, you then start to get kind of genetic traits coming out. So, um kind of basically PUJ obstruction of the kidney, sort of malformations, very high incidence of diabetes, diabetic foot. I, di- I never lost a leg to trauma or gunshot, but amputations from diabetes were were quite common. So, so you're dealing with really quite challenging things, but equally all of that makes you personally much more resilient when you come back. You're much less afraid of what might land in A&E on a receiving day than, than when you went. You've kind of, it is a bit of a baptism of fire. Um, but so long as you are experienced enough to see that you are able to contribute skills that no one else in that place has, then you can see the, the benefit that you're bringing. You can see the good that you're doing. And, and that resilience that you gain will stay with you when you come back. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of come back to the UK with that added resilience and you know you become a consultant i i know that you managed to kind of make some changes to the breast cancer service when uh, you know you were working as a consultant i mean what is it like trying to create change in an organization that's as large as the nhs i mean were there challenges there that that you had to overcome i imagine they were quite different from the challenges you might have seen in gaza <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, I mean the the in in my local area, I became the lead clinician here in in Ayrshire and and did play that role for about fifteen years. Um, I introduced in-house um, breast reconstruction after mastectomy because I'd I'd done plastic surgery training. Um, I helped reorganize and specialize breast cancer here rather than all consultants doing it. Um, and we changed basically the structure of the clinic, et cetera, um, to try and see patients more quickly and to get more things done on the day in, in that one-stop fashion um, that, that was the aim. So I did a lot of reorganization here locally, but I then got invited to become part of the SIGN guideline group that were doing the first breast cancer guidelines and and that was really interesting and then from that when Harry Burns was chief medical officer I got asked to be part of a, a kind of cancer quality assurance group and then the clinical standards board was set up in uh, in 1999 um, and uh, Lord Patel had kind of said he wanted some of the clinicians to be involved. And I thought, oh, fantastic, you know, something that will actually have clinicians inputting. Um, And then I was invited to his office when he said, okay, developing these uh, standards 
um, who do you want on your team? And then I realized, ah, I'm not inputting, I'm doing. So I led the development of the first kind of breast cancer, if you like, accreditation standards for Scotland, uh, which we did the work in 2000 and it was published in 2001. Um, and we visited all of the breast cancer units in Scotland, uh, did a lot of work over those early years. Um, and I was then um, kind of... Uh, deputy lead clinician and then lead clinician of the West of Scotland managed clinical network for breast cancer. So again, within that, I was doing a lot around audit and benchmarking and peer review, um, did the redo of the standards in 2007. And at that time, we set up the Scottish Breast Cancer Conference, which happens every year. So one of the great things has been we're all using the same data approach. We're all measuring ourselves against the same aspirational standards. And then once a year, we basically come together. And part of that is, is looking at our data collectively and peer reviewing it. And, and it's a fantastic session because we're challenging each other but equally, if you're struggling with one of the standards, there'll always be someone else in the room who has been in that position and is able to go, yeah, we we were finding we couldn't keep up two years ago and this is how we've redesigned the clinic or this is what we're doing. And, and there's a great sharing. And I think that's one of the strengths of the NHS in Scotland, that we are still a unified public NHS Whereas obviously in England, even within the NHS, hospitals are competing with each other for contracts. They don't just compete with private providers. Um, they compete with each other to get contracts. And therefore, you know, Debenhams and Marks and Spencers don't sit down and share practice on how to successfully sell goods. They are competing. And, and that has developed in NHS England. And thankfully, till now, we don't have that. Um, and what you would see if you went back to sort of 2001, 2002, and then followed the data through because we have unified data since 2003. So we literally have 16, 17 years worth of data and you can see the standards just driving up year after year after year, not threatening, not removing funding or anything like that. Clinicians want to do a good job and both being challenged by colleagues and learning from colleagues is actually the best way of, of pushing that performance up. So for me, that was an, a really busy time in the early 2000s uh, up to kind of late 2000s, that kind of decade, um, but immensely rewarding because I was still doing my own work here in Ayrshire, but yet knowing that you were having an impact on the care that was given to women all across Scotland. So I, I really enjoyed it. Enjoyed sounds not quite the right word, but I really enjoyed it. Um, and, and then I was back in the NHS in the first wave of COVID. And it was interesting when I, when I look at some of the barriers, because we didn't, some of the aspects of the redesign that we wanted to do back in 2000 here in Ayrshire never happened because, you know, you're just constantly meeting barriers, talk to the hand kind of thing. And yet being involved, and I was involved in kind of a project around end of life support for working with the hospice, working with care homes, working with carers, um, how to provide support to unpaid carers, etc. And 
there the difference that we've seen in the spring was just all those normal barriers between parts of the NHS or the NHS and social care, et cetera, just fell down. Um, you know, it was right. What do we need to do? How can we do that? Right. Okay. Let's just do that. And, and things changing within weeks that when I look back to the early 2000s, it literally took you years to kind of fight your way through all of these barriers. So I, I hope that when we get through this and go forward, that kind of better integration, I mean, the integration between health and social care has been the policy in Scotland for over six years. And I'm sure many people look and think, I wish we had got further with it. It would have helped us in this crisis. But I think conversely, this crisis will help us with integration because people have had to work together. They've formed relationships. They've developed trust. And I, I think that what you see is a lot of innovation happening. But certainly back in the early 2000s, trying to change anything just was really laborious. Um, it's really interesting to sort of hear you talk about those things. I mean, you've touched on a few key ideas about sort of fragmentation about our coronavirus response. I want you that I want to ask you a little bit more about in in a little a little bit later in the conversation. Um, I'm just wondering, kind of, when Philippa Whitford, the politician, starts to sort of you know emerge and kind of you know when you when you decide to make that transition because you know it seemed to me that you know you could have easily not done that and you know you already had like a, a fantastic career so what kind of made you make the jump um well i've always been political with a small p i mean obviously my interest in in working overseas um you know i was mess president as a junior doctor so often had to go and you know, argue with hospital management about things. I was very active as a consultant, just living here in Ayrshire in various voluntary settings. So I've always believed, and I, I quite often I talk with groups about the, the fact that doctors should be advocating for their patients, and and that in a political sense with a small p. I mean, I wasn't a member of any party uh, until the autumn of 2012, and and that basically what what landed me where I am, and I would probably describe it as that because this was never on my career charts at all. Um, what was Scottish independence was the campaign around independence, and that was I had been following the changes in England from they first came forward under Andrew Andrew Lansley in 2011 in in sheer disbelief that. The government, the UK government, were suggesting that the NHS in England would somehow gain from uh, the involvement of private providers, of outsourcing, of forcing Section 75 of the Health and Social Care Act forces all possible contracts that can be put out to tender have to be put out to tender. And and obviously the, the big health providers like Virgin, G4S, Circle, etc., you know, they have teams that do this kind of stuff. Um, you know, the NHS doesn't. So so you saw a lot of contracts and, and for quite a long time in any year of the contracts put out to tender, the majority were being won by private providers rather than the NHS in England. But as I say, also in England, they compete. NHS hospitals may be competing with each other if they're not that physically far apart. Um, and, and so I, I, I just found it shocking. And I 
was really concerned that, you know, we, we don't control the NHS. I mean, people think we do in that it's devolved, but, you know, the purse strings are utterly controlled by Westminster, as we've seen recently over the, the argument with furlough. Um, and therefore, the, the power that the UK government would have over any Scottish government is, is still absolutely there. And um, and I felt that the media here in Scotland weren't talking about what was happening in England and that people should know about it. And then there was a, a leaflet that came out from Better Together suggesting that if Scotland voted for independence, we would leave the UK NHS and Scotland would have no NHS at all. Whereas, of course, the Scottish NHS has been a separate legal entity since 1948. The principle of the NHS was inspired by the Highlands and Islands Medical Service, which was set up in 1913. So, you know, this this story that somehow Scotland would have no NHS. Uh, I thought, this is ridiculous. I need to start speaking up about this. So I was very active in the independence campaign. And it was really at the end of that, when I'd stopped crying because we didn't win, um, people started bending my ear saying, oh, you need to stand. You should go into politics. You should go to Westminster. And mm. I, I was just basically, you're off your head. Why on earth would I want to do that? <laughs> I've been patronized for years as a, uh, you know, as a woman in surgery. Why would I want to go to London to be patronized by public schoolboys in a posh accent? Um, so I, I kind of just kept saying no. And uh, the former first Minister Alex Salmond um, also was kind of asking me to stand, um, and I kind of met him at our at our conference. I, I joined the SNP at that stage, um, and I came home to my husband, who'd started out with the "Don't you come home here telling me you're going to Westminster." Uh, and I kind of said, right, okay, first minister. He was first minister till yesterday. So, you know, I, we should do him the honour of at least discussing it again, but I'm not going to change my mind. Only to discover that my husband had changed his mind. So he had now moved to everyone else going, you should do it. It's fate. You know, you should step up, etc." And, and I'm going, no, I'm still not doing it. And at the end of November 14, I, I was, most of my campaigning was with a group called Women Women for Independence, and it was set up in recognition that um, women are often not keen to kind of get involved in aggressive public mm. debate. If men get hold of the microphone, women won't get to ask a question. Women don't like to ask a question and then be attacked. And so we ran women-only meetings that were often based on just kind of coffee, cake and conversation. Mm. Uh, and I'd been very active in that setting. And our strap line was independence for women. And the idea was getting more women into politics. So I'd set up a, a, a one day conference here in Ayrshire. At the end of November, we had over 200 women from the West of Scotland discussing how to get more women into politics. And it was Jean Freeman and I, our current current cabinet secretary, who were the kind of main uh, speakers, and I'm going, are you standing? No, you no. And yet we're both standing up at the podium, going, women need to step forward and pick up the baton <laughs> and speak out, etc. And it's, to it feel clearly worked that, on me. Yeah, it starts to <laughs> yeah. feel like you Total should hypocrite. be standing. Yeah, <laughs> literally, literally, when my alarm went off at quarter to six the next morning, by the time I got to the bathroom, I thought I'm going to have to do this. 
um, and kind of woke my husband up and said, I hate to tell you, but I'm, I'm going to have to put myself mm. forward. And when I got in touch with my local SNP branch, he said, oh, well, it's great you've come forward because, you know, the nominations close the day after tomorrow. <laughs> um, but so that was a fast application you wrote then. Last minute, to, <laughs> to that last minute, I had no intentions of standing. And when I arrived, I remember the state opening of parliament after I was elected and uh, we were all sitting and the chambers packed and, you know, obviously the conservatives had won. So there was a lot of braying and shouting and so on. And I just thought, Oh God, what have I done? And and my husband was watching it in telly and he sent me a wee text going, are you all right? You've gone really <laughs> pale. And I just said, OMG, what have I done? <laughs> Wow. So yeah, you're so busy, you're so busy fighting to be selected, mm-hmm. then fighting to be elected. It's only then when you land there you think, oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. what a change in my life, you know. Well, that puts us in a really good place to kind of, you know, ask them so the main kind of question that I wanted to ask you about today is about whether we need more doctors in frontline politics. You know, in the the reason for asking that question is that there's lots of things going on with, you know, coronavirus that, you know, don't seem as optimal as they could be. Lots of things about, you know, influencing the health service, which as a junior doctor, you know, you definitely don't feel in a position to be able to influence things a lot. But I kind of, you know, I want to sort of focus on this question of, you know, if you're a doctor in politics, does that give you more of an edge on speaking about health issues compared to you know some of the other politicians i mean what what do you find uh, no i think it i think it definitely does i'm i'm probably one of the most senior medics in the house of commons uh, it doesn't mean that people do what i say but what's noticeable if you are someone who watches parliament tv or parliament live tv on on the internet is that people shut up and listen and actually, that's a real novelty in the House Commons. I mean, sometimes, even though someone is making a speech, it's literally like a primary three classroom. There's, you know, a kind of hubbub all the time. People are just talking, ignoring the person who's speaking. And and you won't hear it so much on TV because all the other microphones are off. But if you're in the chamber, it can be really loud and off-putting, whereas people do usually listen. Quite often after a speech, I will have someone from both Labour and Conservative who may come up and say, great speech. I always pay attention to what you say. And I think that we absolutely need not just more doctors, but more people with a science background. Out of 650 MPs, there's apparently less than 30 who have a science background. And I think that is definitely part of why there is such a struggle around the coronavirus response. Um, I think if you had more people who understood statistics, understood immunology, obviously my thesis was breast cancer immunology, but that at least means you you speak the language, you can read the research papers. Um, Then I think that some decisions, particularly early in the the crisis, would have been taken quite differently. Similarly, when this started, it wasn't party political at all. I mean, there is no handbook on COVID. Every government on the planet is having to find its way forward. So there's no easy answers to this. But a simple thing that 
the government in Westminster could have done is say, well, can we have a task force of all the doctors in the house and all those who are from any kind of, you know, scientific biomedical background so that we can have kind of cross-party input instead of it gradually becoming more and more party political because of the decisions that the UK government have made. I mean, obviously, health is devolved and as is public health and therefore things like um, contact tracing and so on in Scotland and Wales is based on public health teams. Um, We are reaching over 90% of cases and contacts. In England, the decision to outsource that to Circle who've then subcontracted it to almost 30 other companies, they're not even reaching 60% of contacts. So so you had an ideological decision that outsourcing is good that is undermining the response in England. And similarly, the decision was made around testing to set up this commercial network of lighthouse laboratories um, instead of initially funding expansion of NHS laboratories even if you were bringing in back uh, back up from local universities and research centers to have kept the data and the sampling uh, managed by the NHS would have made that data available immediately to the local public health team, to GPs, etc. Um, you wouldn't have had the nonsense of the 16,000 cases that got lost because they were using a, a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet instead of a database. I mean, the NHS would never keep data in that way. So so to me, the the ideological approaches of let's let's use this opportunity to get big commercial players involved instead of let's use the expertise we've got to to at least lead. So even if you're bringing in less experienced people at the bottom, let's have the decision-making and the leading from our public services. And that's an ideological conservative decision. But equally, you know, I've been raising, I mean, I raised asymptomatic spread back in February and Matt Hancock uh, was so patronizing as to offer a briefing for me so I could get my clinical questions right in the future, this kind of thing. If if Matt Hancock had been uh, your SHO, I mean, you would have eaten him for breakfast. Probably, yes. And then spat him out. But I but I think, you know, what we were talking about earlier about going overseas as volunteers, I think the same thing applies in politics. Regardless of what you're doing, there's no need to rush to be a politician early in your life or early in your career. It doesn't matter what people do. Having more real-world experience in Parliament, whether it's Holyrood or Westminster, is a benefit. So whether that's real world as a housewife, a scientist, Mm -hmm. a business person, a teacher, all of that is real world experience that helps for better decisions. What we have far too much of nowadays, and it's very evident in Westminster, is career politicians who, who don't have real world experience. And it seems that your impression is that, especially about evidence, you know, they don't have the the mastery of kind of how to understand that evidence. And, you know, I, I know that the counterpoint to that is that, well, you know, ministers have advisors to advise who, who do understand the detail. But, you know, there's part of me that kind of thinks, well, but if you can read the papers for yourself, you're going to make better decisions. I mean, is that is that what you think as well? I, I absolutely think that um, because I think you you have to be able to 
to find uh, a balance and weigh the importance. I mean, politicians are given lots of different advice from different groups, from different advisors. I mean, obviously, SAGE is the main group that advises the government. But, you know, there's, there's actually a relatively low representation of public health, traditional public health within that group. Whereas if you'd had a, a, you know, a bigger representation of public health, uh, as opposed to mathematical modeling and behavioral scientists, then you might have taken a more public health approach to COVID in the same way as to AIDS or a TB outbreak or food poisoning or anything else. So, you know, I think if you have a degree of understanding yourself, then that will help you in deciding which advisors you're listening to or even the makeup of, of your advisory group. And I think that otherwise, you know, unpalatable truths become easier to ignore as a politician to kind of go, yes, well, one says yes and one says no. I, I prefer the yes, so I'm going to go with that. I think if you if you actually have a degree of understanding, then you will have a better uh, comprehension of this is going to be tough, but actually we have no choice. We we have to do this. Um, but I think, I mean, at the moment it's kind of scientific and medical. And I think COVID shows us, you know, when we think of defense, you know, we think of armies and navies, you, people talk about Trident, etc. But actually the big threats that we have, whether it's cyber attack or climate change or something like COVID, you know, it's resilience you're looking at and it's defense in the purest sense. And, and you know, governments have not been looking at what is your national resilience to these kind of challenges. And, and what we see is that this virus has literally brought our economy and our society to a shuddering halt. And hopefully that will be a wake up call um, to the importance of health within a nation's resilience. And unfortunately, it came at the end of 10 years of fierce austerity when both mm -hmm. health and social care had been hollowed out. Well, let's talk about coronavirus um, for a moment. So I know that, um, so Devi Sridhar, who's like the, the professor of public health uh, based in Edinburgh, um, you know, she did a, an interview where she said that the three factors that you need if you want to fight coronavirus and eliminate it is you need a strong track trace and importantly isolate program and only 11% of people that are identified by track and trace at the moment are actually isolating for the full 14 days. She also said you need strict border controls and you need good voluntary compliance with the rules sort of as per a, a good messaging campaign and I'm just thinking we don't have I like we don't have any of those three things. Um, um, well, I, I would disagree with you because, I mean, I'm a huge admirer of Devi and obviously she's advisor to the Scottish government. But as I said, I mean, in Scotland, the, the uh, contact tracing is reaching over 90 percent and has done since it, it started up at the end of May of, of mm -hmm. cases and contacts. So I would disagree. I mean, the, you know, when you say we, we're both sitting here in Scotland. So, yeah. you know, I think it's recognizing that. Um, I think the communication that we've had in the daily briefings from the first minister, you know, she's getting international recognition for mm -hmm. her clarity and her straightforwardness. Um, but obviously, the, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, he's someone who likes to be liked 
and he likes to give good news. And, you know, when I was working as a cancer surgeon, you could see this with other colleagues, you know, someone who who wants to say to the patient, I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's nothing to worry about, even though actually they suspect it's a cancer. You're not being kind to the patient. You're much kinder, to be honest. So, you know, the prime minister talked about we'll have it beaten in, you know, 12 weeks or whatever. Then it was we'll be hugging by November. Everything will be back to normal by Christmas. And even in his briefing on Saturday, it was it'll be it'll all be fine by the spring. And the lockdown in England will definitely end on the 2nd of December. You know, don't overpromise and under deliver be absolutely open about how difficult this is and the fact that you're feeling your way and be really clear i mean in may when the prime minister changed the messaging from stay at home to stay alert there hadn't been any consultation with the three devolved nations and you know literally people were told on a sunday night you should get back to work And so some people went out and went back to work the next day. And we saw pictures of crowded London undergrounds without, you know, mask wearing. So, you know, you want to keep it simple. You want to keep it clear. Now, the messages have changed over time because there's things we know now about the virus that we didn't know so clearly at the beginning. We know that uh, even homemade face coverings make a much bigger contribution than people thought at the beginning. So they're really important. The washing your hands and so on, we've known that right from the start. We now know that the virus creates an aerosol, not just if you're doing an anesthetic or a dental procedure. It it produces an aerosol at any time. So ventilation and air purification systems are going to be much more important. So, you know, I've raised in the house and I've now written to the chancellor, take the VAT off ventilation systems and air quality systems, make them tax deductible, because we are going to have to learn to live with this. But I think what you have, and of course, England dominates the UK because of its sheer size. What you have is that public health in England, as part of the Health and Social Care Act, um, has largely been dismembered. The funding was drastically cut. Uh, Public health was moved into local government where funding has been uh, really tight and that's been, you know, tight across the whole UK. And what you saw was even very basic public health services uh, like smoking uh, cessation or sexual health. You saw them shrinking over the last five or six years. So you're talking about a skeleton. And now, of course, Public Health England, which was created by this government, now being shifted into a semi-public, semi-private agency, um, kind of around health protection. And I want to know what is the English lockdown for? So yes, you want to get R below one because things are rising exponentially. But what's going to be different after the 2nd of December? You've hit on something there that I want to pick up, actually. So because um, something I was really impressed with as a sort of junior doctor was that um, when uh, in March, when we were sort of going into sort of first lockdown, um, my hospital where I was working, uh, as soon as they got the clinicians involved and all the consultants, things started to happen really, really quickly. And for me, it's kind of it's heartbreaking in a way to kind of see a like kind of lack of um, 
a good strategy on a national level. You know, does lockdown two that's happening, you know, it's happened kind of just in just this week um, as we're speaking. Does that mean that the time that we bought with lockdown one has kind of in effect been wasted? Uh, no, not at all. And I mean, in Scotland, we got right down into single figures. We had nine weeks with uh, no daily deaths uh, for other than in one week uh, where the death certificates where COVID was even mentioned was in single figures or low teens. So that's a lot of people over the summer in Scotland who didn't die. And it meant that when we were getting our test trace isolate system up and running, uh, the contact tracing system, they were able to do that with low numbers, um, which is really important. Whereas in England, they allowed the numbers to stay closer to a thousand cases a day for a lot of the summer. The lowest they got down to was kind of 570, 600, something like that. And and they just never, I mean, the circle who do the common contact tracing have never got higher than 65%. Of, of context reach, and that is critical. But the important thing is isolation. Neither getting a test nor getting a phone call to say you're a contact or that you're positive does anything to prevent the spread of the virus. It's isolation. And as you said, you know, surveys have shown that the King's College paper showed that 18% of people and 23% in Scotland were isolating if asked to do as contact. That's no good. The problem is you've got far too many people who either wouldn't get any sick pay if they were isolating, or even if they were getting sick pay, it's £94 a week. They they couldn't manage on it. So there's lots of people who, who might be quite happy to isolate, the choice would be feeding your family. So now the government have come up, and this is us eight months on with this five hundred pounds uh, for the fortnight to support you if you're if you're low paid or if you're on benefits. The problem is that in Scotland we're we're now doing that. That's through local government. There's just a number that you phone, but it's still not very clear in England how you access that. Um, and people who are informed with the app in England that they're a contact, they don't get a code number and they're struggling to, to access that money. So the problem is that we're often talking about the testing, which was around creating the capacity, the tracing, which really ought to be based on local public health teams who have local knowledge, who can spot patterns, who can speak to people in the community. But the third thing is you have to support people to isolate. And that's why many people, including SAGE and Independent SAGE, would talk about test, trace, isolate and support. If you're not supporting people, they can't isolate or else their, their kids are not going to have food. So this these are the things that need to get sorted. Um, I'm on the all-party group in coronavirus, so we've been running an inquiry right through the summer and have put forward the um, COVID Secure UK, which would be very much, I mean, Debbie is a signatory of it, uh, as is Martin McKee from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, and that is very much, you need to take action at your borders. The UK is one of the few countries that have really been very lax uh, about the borders. You need to maximally 
suppress the virus. And I think that involves investing in the difficult indoor industries like hospitality to improve ventilation. Um, And it then means you need a test, trace and isolate system that works so that you can detect an outbreak early and shut it down. That brings us sort of back to the issue of kind of how do you influence things as a doctor? You know, where's the correct or where do you have the most influence? And it, it kind of seems to me that that's not necessarily kind of in a clinical setting. It seems to me that, you know, the people that have influence over our sort of coronavirus strategy are the politicians. So, I mean, do you feel you've gained more ability to change things as an MP than you had as a consultant? I was wondering if you could sort of um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think possibly regarding COVID in that I speak out. I, I don't obviously have power at Westminster at all. I mean, I'm in the opposition. But, you know, when I raised the, the issue of um, supporting putting in ventilation systems uh, in the House a few weeks ago, you know, I had a lot of people emailing me and writing to me. Um, now, I didn't come up with that myself. I mean, the recognition of it as an aerosol has been growing. People like Debbie have been talking about ventilation. You're safer outside than inside. But we can't live outside here in Scotland through the winter. So we need to make indoor settings uh, more secure. So even just being able to air an issue, being able to raise an issue. So when I started talking about asymptomatic spread away back in February, you you are echoing research papers you've read. You're starting to get things on the agenda. And I think that's something you can do. But unless you're in government, obviously you don't you don't have power as a doctor unless you're in a in the kind of governing party. But you do have a much louder voice as a as a politician. What you lose is of course that direct uh, gain that you have of helping patients one at a time, that direct reward you have of seeing the good that you do. It all gets a bit more abstract when you're a politician. But equally, if you've spent several decades helping people and sometimes it just feels like you're bailing out a boat with a hole in it, then sometimes you it, it makes you step back and go, what's causing all of this? So, you know, things that I spend a lot of time is, um, you know, that we should be focusing more on health and well-being rather than just illness. You know, people think health is the NHS. I mean, actually, you would call the NHS the National Illness Service, except who the heck would want to work in that? But <laughs> we do not do enough as a country um, to actually put effort into making people healthy. Um, the early years collaborative around improving the health and chances of children is part of that. You know, your health is laid down in how well nourished your mother was when she was carrying you, what kind of house you live in, education, nutrition, all of these things are what makes you healthy or not healthy. And poverty is the biggest single driver of ill health. So so that's a big topic that I speak a lot on. COVID is a big topic. And one of the things that people overlook is the impact Brexit is having and going to have on health. And it's huge. So things like getting radioisotopes and, and the provision of radioisotopes, because we, we don't make them in the UK. We import them all. You know, I put that on the agenda back in 2016. So, so you have an ability to use your knowledge 
to get something onto the agenda. But unless you're in the ruling party, and unless you're part of the health team in the ruling party, you won't have direct power to change it. But by being sensible and bringing forward the knowledge in not too aggressively a party political way. So if I'm speaking in a debate, I will try to share the knowledge I can bring to that debate rather than going, Yabu sucks, you lot are horrible. <laughs> um, you can You can hopefully get things onto the agenda. You can hopefully get certain things considered. So I definitely think, as I say, we need more of a breadth of professionals or backgrounds and real life knowledge into, into politics. But for doctors, what's difficult is you're going to give up the ability to directly help patients. And therefore you, that bit of good you were doing every day disappears and you're trading that for a more abstract, hopefully ability to influence on, on the bigger scale. But that's what we actually require is health and well-being and i don't you know that's physical and mental health but it's also economic cultural environmental well-being to get those as common threads i mean all policy decisions are checked against the human rights act to me they should also be being checked will this actually make you know people healthier and have greater well-being or will it drive in the opposite direction? And I think if we give, we're giving a much greater primacy to well-being instead of just GDP, I think it would drive us in a much more communitarian, ecological uh, direction, and our citizens would would gain from that. I mean, when I speak to to my colleagues about, well, you know, would it be good if you know someone like you could go into politics? You know, when you know we're complaining about you know, a particular sort of policy or something particular with coronavirus. And, you know, they always say something like, well, yeah, but, you know, I mean, it's just, it must be horrible being a politician. I couldn't possibly do that. And you kind of talked about, you know, the the sort of braying in the Houses of par- Parliament. And, you know, it kind of makes me think, well, is that why we have so few doctors? Is the lifestyle of being a politician just too different to the lifestyle of being a doctor that people don't want to do it. I mean, what, what is running, you know, is running a constituency kind of uh, surgery, is that like running a clinic? You know, um, is it enough like running a clinic that you take those transferable skills? Uh, well, it, it absolutely has transferable skills. And, um, you know, there's basically, it's like a three-legged stool. There's three kind of components. One is absolutely the the helping individual constituents and running a surgery is exactly like a clinic. Sit down, tell me what the problem is. Can I diagnose the underlying issue? Is it something I can help with? How can I do it? And then you and your team, because you ha- you have a team, in your constituency office set about trying to deal with that. Um, and, and obviously in the same way as being a doctor, when you do sort something for a constituent, that is really satisfying, both for you and the people that work with you. Um, so that's always nice. And that's those little wins that you get 
on behalf of an individual. You obviously have the more academic aspect in the House of Commons of taking part in debate, in making sure that you have the knowledge, that you know what you're talking about, and and the ability to, to influence people. So, you know, even if it's circuitous, so even if it's I'm talking on a topic and then some Conservative MPs might say, oh, I didn't know that, or that's quite interesting, and maybe within their party, they will kind of say, oh, well, I heard this and, you know, maybe we should look at that. You you are trying to to influence. But there's also that it's a sort of academic challenge of, of debate. And then the third thing, which I enjoy very much in the constituency, is being involved with community projects, and including setting some up myself with, with people who are interested. So, so being able to see something that didn't exist and you've helped set up and you see it flourish, those kind of things are interesting. But the actual, the day-to-day life normally, I mean, obviously I'm sitting at home, um, but the day-to-day life normally is quite grueling and, and, and quite exhausting. I mean, obviously for us, we have to travel up and down to Westminster every week. We live away from home for four days a week, which is which is quite difficult, particularly for people who've got young children. Um, as you say, the atmosphere within the chamber can be pretty awful with the kind of braying and heckling and shouting. Um, and also then you, you're living with the abuse on social media, um, which which is quite relentless and is is very aggressive generally towards women. So, you know, that's why you get f- perhaps fewer doctors, but it's also why we struggle to recruit women into politics because the, the general um, anti-female narrative that is visible in the media and on social media is quite unpleasant. And, you know, you work long hours, you know. I mean, you, you may be in meetings all day and you're only actually getting to start your mailbox after dinner and you're still doing emails at midnight so and is that uh, just a fact we have to accept or is there something we can do about it well i I think i think there should be trying to change it i mean obviously it used to be that parliament started at kind of half two-ish in the afternoon so that mps could do their professional work as lawyers and barristers and whatnot in the morning because they weren't paid and then it sat through the night, and obviously you had very few women who were who were in that. They they improved it a bit, but I mean the parliament closes at half past ten on a Monday night, half past seven on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, and then half past five on a Thursday when we're all galloping off to the airport or the train station to to get home. You then Friday is your one. Uh, if you like, business day in the constituency when you can visit a school or a business or have a have a meeting with other agencies. And then Saturday will be dominated by constituency social events that, that you're maybe attending both during the day and the evening. And then by the time you get to Sunday, you're kind of catching up and wading through emails or prepping briefs and so on so it's it's a kind of in in the same way as medicine was you know when I was a junior doctor we worked the kind of bonkers uh old hour rotas and and this is another job where it doesn't have an edge you know there isn't a finishing time and I think you particularly if you've got a family or a young family you have to be quite disciplined and say right this is now family time my son is away off at university so you know, I'm quite bad at doing things like that. But it is, it's, it's. you know, when people talk about the cushy life of, of MPs, I mean, that 
that's just absolute nonsense. But, you know, it, it's a matter of what is it you're wanting to change? I mean, when I talk to doctors or indeed any group, about going into politics. It's not about waiting for some big campaign that you're going to choose to be involved in. Politics starts with a small p, um, very much what is under your nose that you want to change. So whether you're in a, a deep end GP practice in, in Glasgow, or whether you're campaigning around road safety, or you're helping pick up litter in your own community, all of this is politics. It's all about trying to advocate on behalf of either the people you're looking after now or the people that you'll be responsible for in the future to try and improve their health and well-being in that broader sense. And if that takes you to joining a party and becoming an elected member, whether a councillor, an MSP or an MP, then well and good. But I don't think it's something that you should feel rushed to do or that you should be setting out to do. You know, have your career, have that experience. And whether you then are taking it overseas to work as a volunteer or bringing it into the political sphere, I believe as doctors, it's it's the job of all of us to try to speak up on behalf of, of citizens who in essence are our patients to try to make their lives safer and, and healthier. And that means tackling these big issues of poverty and deprivation at one end and the threat of Brexit at the other. So my, uh, so I realised that kind of uh, time's running out on us. So there's just one other question that I was kind of wanting to ask before we bring things to a close. And that is, um, you know, when you went into politics, were there a lot of new skills that you had to learn that you, that, that a career in medicine hadn't prepared you for talking about like the kind of management or the financial side of things. I mean, is that a, a challenge which is putting people off as well? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think a lot of what is the essence of being an MP, which is hopefully uh, an empathic person who actually cares about people. And as I said, you know, doing surgeries is like clinics Um you know, you will be used to public speaking because if you're quite senior, you'll have been giving lectures or talking to, you know, public groups, etc. Uh, one of the changes, of course, when you go to the House of Commons uh, is that you're in a, a slightly more antagonistic venue and you're not talking <laughs> to a PowerPoint, which is what most of us are used to doing. But, you know, you, you develop that. You, you will have developed your public speaking skills and, that, and that's something you can learn. I think probably the biggest shock for me was simply being told, well, you're kind of a small business. You have to kind of arrange the contracts for your staff, lease an office. And when when I was elected in 2015, relatively little help to do that. So I found that very frightening because, of course, I'm a paid public servant. I've, you know, I've never managed a business. I've never set anything up. And I, I was terrified uh, of getting things wrong. So we could get a little advice but not a lot of involvement. Now, that's something that has changed. So in for the 2019 cohort, they get a lot more human resources input. Uh, if they have staffing difficulties or difficulties with staff, there's a lot more support than there was a few years ago. But even when we came in, and it was partly because the House Commons knew that to expect a big wave of SNP MPs, because that's what the polls were suggesting. And there were only six MPs 
uh, already there. So there was no way that six could mentor the 30 that they expected to be. So they actually set up induction uh, and induction courses for us, which was new. Uh, and they've kept that uh, they've kept that going. Whereas obviously Labour and the Conservatives, you know, you've got 300 MPs, you can absorb, you know, a new 50 or 100 or whatever. Um, but th- they've now kept that. And I think that uh, was really helpful to to learn how procedures and things work. I mean, the Westminster is incredibly procedure driven and bureaucratic, but you, you just kind of have to learn it. But for me, definitely, as you say, the kind of financial, um, you know, businessy side of you know making sure your staff are paid and you know that everything's declared and all the paperwork's done that was that was the scary bit at the start mm-hmm. well philippa it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation i've really enjoyed uh talking to you about you know all these different uh sort of things about you know your career and and your life that you know really conversations that you don't get to have uh you know at my stage a lot so yeah it's been really fun um, I just want to kind of end um, on asking like whether there's any sort of career advice that you could give for the listeners if they kind of, uh, you know, are inspired by what you've said and kind of want to get some more skills in that area. And if uh, you could also tell us about a, a book um, that uh, that's made an impression on you. Well, I, I think from the point of view of of skills in the sense of, um, I mean, obviously medicine, hopefully your skills are being developed through the, the schemes that you're all taking part in. I think from the point of view of politics, as I said, you know, it, party politics is not all of politics. Politics is everything that influences people's lives. So so think about politics with a small p and get involved and get involved in something that is important to you because you're going to put more energy into it. Um, and, and that simply is something outside medicine, you know, whether it's climate change or something in your own community or even something within medicine that needs change. So I think just get involved and don't feel that, you know, politics is something you have to rush into. I think, you know, if at some point in your life you want to go into party politics with a big P, fine. But actually, whether it's by volunteering in the UK or elsewhere or just in your local community, you can be making a difference. And I think as a doctor, you should be seeing the importance of making that difference. Um, with regards to book, oh, I mean, I've, oh, I've, I'm a big reader, so lots of books that have made uh, an impact on me. But I think things around, um, you know, more in, in politics would be things like, uh, you know, reading Marmot's book um, or, you know, The Health Gap or The Spirit Level, these kind of things. You know, I think it's important for us as doctors to understand that, yes, we may be in a highly specialized neurosurgical clinic. But if we're not speaking up about road safety, we are literally just bailing out a boat with a hole in it. So whatever it is you're seeing in your medical experience, think about why it keeps happening and think about how you might want to get involved with a grassroots group that's trying to change that. Um, so I think I think just generally for young doctors is accepting the importance of um, supporting the NHS, supporting the idea of keeping healthcare public, but also is our role in advocacy, that we literally have a medical duty 
to be trying to change the society we're in to be fairer and to engender health and well-being rather than just pick up the pieces at the end. Okay, well, we'll link those books in the description uh, to the podcast. And Philippa, thanks very much for chatting to me. You're very welcome. And I wish you and all of your listeners well in your careers. If you like the podcast, the best way to support it at this stage is to tell your friends about it and share it on social media. You can use the hashtag #HealthyDiscussions or my Twitter handle at MontereyZach to tell me your thoughts about this episode. In the description, you'll find more about our guests' work and their book recommendations. Thanks to Health Education England Northeast, Health Education England Southwest, and Medics Academy for supporting this episode. All of us at the Healthcare Leadership Academy are grateful for their support.